Day two, July 2nd, would serve to be a very bloody day for both sides as the battle shifted to the south or the right flank of the Union lines. In Lee's way was a small mountain called Little Round Top. The Union forces commanded by Brigadier General Governor K. Warren were doing their level best to stave off a series of attacks by exhausted but determined seasoned Confederate warriors. On the very end of the Union line stood 385 men commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain of the 20th Maine. Seeing his enemy in butternut and gray forming ranks just down the slopes in front of him, he knew he was in for the fight of his life. His immediate commander told Lieutenant Colonel Chamberlain, Sir, you are to hold this line at all costs. You are the end of the line. If you do not hold, all will be lost, sir. Chamberlain, Chamberlain's men fought bravely, as did their foes from the 15th Alabama. After several attempts to outflank the Union's left, and after heavy losses and depleted ammunition to the 20th Maine, it appeared that indeed all would be lost. A miracle would be needed to see any hope for the Union on that day. Folks, this is not unlike describing where we are today. We are in a spiritual battle. Even though I am describing a situation that is a, a natural battle, we find that spiritual warfare is not unlike what we experience in natural warfare. So where are we? What is the challenge of the church today? You know, there's a story in the Bible that really describes exactly where we are prophetically. I'll tell you this story very quickly. You've heard of Elijah. Elijah, a prophet of Israel, faithful to his God, prophesying against the kingdom of Israel because of their disobedience to God, because of their abandoning the ways of God, abandoning the word of God over their lives, their vision, their purpose. There were two very evil leaders during that time named Ahab and his wife, wicked queen Jezebel. They were in direct opposition to Elijah. They wanted to kill Elijah if they'd had the chance. But of course, God would not let that happen. He prophesied and he prophesied often judgment and doom. And Ahab didn't like that at all. As what was happening there, what was going on is Jezebel was, was influencing Ahab and bringing in hordes of the prophets of Baal so that the prophets of God and the Levitical priesthood was, was pushed away and, and, and depleted in its sources. Over all of Israel, the fear of Jehovah was disappearing. So these prophets of Baal were coming in and deceiving, and Elijah came to a moment where it was his own personal high-water mark, where it was a challenge. God had told him, it's time for you to stand up and challenge this darkness over your land. And so Ahab, I'm sorry, Elijah called all of the people together and he said, today we're going to see who's God really is God. And so he called the prophets of Baal who came, satanic worshiping, evil priests to come in and to set up their uh, altar. And he said, go for it. Let's see today who's God is really God. And so the prophets of Baal set up an altar, and he told him just what to do. And he brought in, he said, now, if your God is God, then he'll take that offering. He'll do something. He'll show up. And so the prophets of Baal said, okay, we'll do it. And so they began to conjure, and they began to curse, and they began to do everything they could to call on Baal, of course, who we know is Satan himself, to come and to take his offering. 
And they yelled and they cut themselves and, and bloodlet, which was part of their tradition as well. And to call out and call out. And Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry, Elijah yelled at them and said, come on, perhaps you should yell louder. Of course, Baal never showed up. They were there all day until they were completely exhausted. And he said, are you done? Now watch the living God. And Elijah called out for the living God who came and sent fire from heaven and not only burnt up, before he did, he said, look, cover it with water, 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 wet the wood, wet the the offering, make it, matter of fact, put a trench of water all around it. And he said, watch what God does. Just to make sure they couldn't call it just combustion or the sun being too hot or anything, all of a sudden a fire from heaven came down and consumed the offering, consumed the wood, consumed the stones and left a crater in the ground. Elijah looked at it and he said, now seize those prophets of Baal and put them, every one of them to death. And that's what they did. The people of God saw, oh my gosh, we've been following the wrong God. Now word got back to Jezebel and she said, oh, Elijah, you've done it now. Far be it from me that I let you live before the day is out. A wicked threat came against Elijah. And Elijah, in, 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 in the most misunderstood and, and, and confusing thing that you've ever read in the Bible, runs for his life. Rather than stand against this wickedness, he already saw the hand of God, but he ran. He ran from his life, for his life. And some scholars believe that it was actually a suicidal run, that he went out into the desert without food or water, hoping that God would just kill him. Because he's like, I can't handle this. I can't handle this threat. Surely I am now dead. Of course, we know now that was a wicked threat against his life, that it was a spiritual battle against his soul, that he was so seized with fear over it that he ran. God said, no, not so fast, Elijah. And God fed him supernaturally with ravens who brought him food and water. He was able to crawl himself out of the desert and into a cave. And in that cave, he thought he would hide out and isolate himself, and surely he would be safe there. Then God showed up. Scripture tells us that there was an earthquake and then a mighty wind, and yet God was not in either one. And then all of a sudden, a still, small voice. And what did God speak to Elijah? He said, why are you here? Elijah, what are you doing here? And he says, well... (laughs) I, I, didn't you see what I do? I was zealous for you today. I was zealous and, and, and I did all for you and we killed off all those wicked ones. But then it, 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 Jezebel, it only, it, it only served to cause her to become even angrier and lash out. My life is on the line. I'm the only one left. And God kind of chuckles to himself. He says, Elijah, are you so faithless after watching my hand? Don't you realize you're not the only one? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal, and they're ready. They just need a leader. They just need to hear, go. And so Elijah got up, and he went, and he did exactly what God had told him to do. He anointed a new leader named Jehu, who rose up and rose up the armies of Israel and fought and and, and allowed and watched Ahab die, and then Jezebel was put to death as well. And thus began a revival and a completely new path for a nation that was very deeply, deeply going in a wicked direction. You know, some people would say that today, Elijah is the church. And that here we are in a situation where our, 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 our backs are up against the wall, that we live in a culture, in a world today, where 
the Antichrist spirit is, is, is moving with a lurching forward as it never has in, in our lifetimes. And that the church is in a situation where it has to make a decision. It has to make a decision. But for the most part, what we've been is like Elijah running for our lives, running for isolation. Pull, we're so tempted to go into the cave and just say, let's just wait this out and hope that God will come again soon. Jesus will come soon and rescue us from all of this. You know, I feel like that. As a matter of fact, after I preached and, and, and took us through forward and, and, and we did what we did, it was amazing. I almost felt like a spiritual slapback come to me. And it was almost like, almost like the enemy came to me and said, no, you're not going to do this. I'm not letting you do this. And feeling negativity and, and the spiritual warfare surrounding it. And, 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 and I, matter of fact, I went to Michigan for, on vacation. And I remember just thinking, God, what am I going to do? And the Lord, in the early morning hours, said, David, what are you doing? Sir, I told you to go forward, and forward you will go. And I remember stirring up and just saying, okay, God, what do we do? He said, teach my people to be the church. Teach my people to love the city that they're in. And as I began to study that, as I began to give my heart to it, I began to go, that's it. So we're going to be selling T-shirts. We're going to be selling hoodies and little wraps around you. And you may see, see like that's a silly thing. Matter of fact, when you see I love my city, you may be thinking, what are you talking about? I hate my city. I understand that. I've been in this city for 15 years, but you know what? I've traveled. I've lived in Michigan. I've lived in Kentucky and I've lived in Alabama and I've lived in Iowa and I've lived here. And I've never been to any place where I didn't see a group of people say, I hate this place. What are you talking about? You live in paradise. Yeah, but I don't like it. Because that is the heart of, the, of man. That is what is so easily deceives us into becoming a part of the problem rather than the solution. And so over the next several weeks, folks, we're going to talk about how to love. You know, so we're not trying to be silly and just talk ourselves into loving our city. We're not just saying, hey, let's, let's be you know, automatons and just think that by putting it on a T-shirt, it's going to make us love it. We know that's not true. We need to be taught. We need to embrace what God has called us to do. We need to, we, need to, we need to listen to the Lord's voice and understand who we are called to be. Is there a strategy? There absolutely is, and we're going to look at it. But folks, where are we? Let's talk about reality. Our country is divided down ideological lines. You almost have to go back to the Civil War to find a time where we have been this divided, so isolated, Whatever you think politically, it is disturbing to see us flirting with ideologies of death, new religions of earth worship, and the essential redefining of humanity are threatening our very existence. America is quickly standing alone, but even we are closer to a great fall as we ever have been. It used to be said that we live in a post-Christian culture, and you know, I understand that, because I grew up as a baby boomer in a time when you could go off, they could take you out of school and no one would ever question it to go to a Bible lesson that they could give away and talk about Jesus and, and, and talk about Bible and public school and nobody seemed to ever frown upon it or call the ACLU or go and do this or sue your pants off. You didn't have to worry about any of that. But then all of a sudden came this what was called the post-Christian culture because we raised up a generation, whether they're the millennials, or whatever you want to call it, a whole generation of young people who had no clue what the Bible even said. 
And so they went off to their universities. They went off to different places, and they, and they don't understand what the foundation of what so many of us older ones had as children. And so they called that the post-Christian era. In other words, a period of culture where Christianity and its basic essential beliefs were not being taught. And so no one had a clue. And so it was so easy to judge it, so easy to, to tear it down, so easy to push it away. And now here we are at the very precipice of going from a post-Christian culture, culture to what I'm going to call a post-truth culture. In other words, we have now devolved, I'll say, into a period of time where none of us knows what's really true. We got a lot of people talking. We got we got pundits, and we got talking heads, and we got movements, and we got this, we got that. We know, none of us seems to know what is true. We're being lied to so much. It's being twisted, and, and everything is a manipulation, whether it be from the movies we watch for our children to the magazines and the internet we watch. None of us knows. There, there is such a movement of deception. It is beyond belief. We're living in a post-truth culture. That's reality. The false prophets of Jeremiah's time were saying peace and safety and ignoring God's words of warning. Our children are threatened with anti-God philosophies that were once given with a wink but are now forced with a threat. Families hold on barely while our young people are offered up to bail worshiping globalists. And I kid you not. Jesus warned us that a whole host of global symptoms would come before the end, including what we see in our societies, not to mention earthquakes, storms. You know, what, what is so interesting is that we are drawn into such an argument about our climate. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. This is exactly what's going to happen before the end. The point is, do we kill two-thirds of the world's population to try to solve a problem that is only a birth pain of Christ coming again? Wake up, Christians! Jesus warned us that a whole host of global symptoms would come. As in the days of Noah and Jeremiah and Jesus himself, the prophets of warning are marginalized and mocked for being conspiracy theorists and alarmists. God speaks to us and lets us know what the seasons and the times are. How close are we to the end? We don't know, but ever closer than before. That's the reality of where we are. And so it's easy for us to be just like Elijah and just say, you know, I'm out. I'd rather isolate myself. I'd rather, you know, Jamie and I joke about that sometimes when we see things or we read something like, that's it, man, going to buy a farm, out. <laughs> Done with it. You don't know how many times I feel that way. It's just like, you know what, I'm going to take my family and go. Go find me some little safe little spot where I can raise my children to love God, to serve him, to know him. But I can't. We can't, because there is a solution, folks. Just like Joshua Chamberlain sitting on that little round top, looking down at our enemy, knowing that we don't have another bullet in our gun, knowing that all it takes is one more char charge, and it is over. That we feel like that at times, that we, it's just like, man, we don't, we don't have any more ammunition. We've, we've done all we can to stand against this. That we, we, you know, the, the media's taken over, our movies, our entertainment's taken over, everything. I, we got nothing. But just like Joshua Chamberlain, Chamberlain, who writes in his autobiography, he said, you know, when I sat, sat and stood on that line and I looked down that hill, 
I went to my childhood and I remembered what my dad taught me. Interesting. My dad brought me into a field as, and he was, he was a farmer as so many people were in those days. And he brought him out to a field that was full of rocks. And he said, son, this is where you're going to stay for this summer. You're going to remove every rock out of this field. And that's what he did until he got to a huge rock. And he said, dad, I've gotten most of them out, but I can't move that one. And he goes, son, you're going to have to move that rock. And he goes, well, how will I move it? He goes, you move it. That's how you move it. Well, thanks, dad. Appreciate that little bit of wisdom. So dad just walks away and leaves his little boy, Lawrence, stared at stare at this big, huge rock. And he looked at it, and he looked at it, and he looked at it all day long until finally he realized, well, maybe I should use some of the things that I've learned in school. Maybe if I work with some levers, maybe if I just kind of work around it, if I just keep working and working and working and finally use ingenuity, and sure enough, he did. He got it up out of the hole in the ground, and then he rolled it over to the side of the field, exhausted. At the end of the day, his dad walks in there, and he says, commendable. And he remembered on that day as he stood looking at a very impossible situation. How do, I, how do I change this? You change it. That's how you change it. You go forward. You don't give up. Folks, do we have a solution? Are we defeated? Or is victory just one decision away? Well, I choose to believe that victory is a part of our journey. Because here's the thing. We just sat and sang a song about the assured victory that we have been given in Christ. Amen? We know the end of the story. That is the unique thing that we have on the globalists. That's the unique thing that we have on those who are trying to change this generation. That's the unique thing that we have on every other religion. We got a book that says we win. Do you got a book that says you win? I don't think so. We got a book that tells us exactly how it's all going to play out. And we win. So just like Elijah, the church is in a cave, and God is showing up, and he's saying, what are you doing? What are you in here for? Why are you hiding? You go back to where I took it, because I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. That's the sad part of what we're talking about here. We're talking about of course, the, the numbers have changed. There are many, many more people in our nation who have no affiliation with Christianity whatsoever and, and don't want to. But there still is a mighty throng, a mass of Christians who are just not doing a thing. Who are, have a belief in God, have a belief in Christ, enjoy his salvation, enjoy what they believe and read in the Bible, but they have not taken one step forward in using the wonderful gifts they've been given to understand what is the biblical strategy to change this situation. Sometimes the church has to reconnoiter its position to look at the state of affairs and ask the hard question, is the church positioned properly to fight the good fight? At times, tradition and, quote, the way we always have done it, unquote, will not suffice. Ingenuity, fresh vision, fresh warriors, and a new energy will win the day. It's interesting. You look at Lawrence Chamberlain. You know, he wasn't a professional soldier. He was a professor of rhetoric who joined in, he just said, you know, gosh, there's a war going on. I guess I'll join. And so he showed up and he said, well, yeah, you look clean, clean shaven. You, you, you can read. You're going to make you an officer. 
And he, they made him an officer. And now he's sitting in a situation that will absolutely turn the tide of the whole war based upon a guy who has have only very minimal military training. And he has to rely upon something that is out of the military manual for the most part. Ingenuity. See, here's the thing. The church has forgot how to be the church. The church has forgotten that we're not a building. We're not a spire. We're not chairs and pews. We're none of that. We are a people. We are the ecclesia, the called out ones, called out of the world, living in the world, but not being of it. And then, but, but then what do we do? We got to understand what we, what we are called to do, what we're empowered to do, what we're impassioned to do. Well, I'll tell you, first and foremost, we got to understand that God has not called us to be diminished. God has not called us to even be militaristic in the sense of what you think I'm probably saying. Not at all. Another story to give you context. Israel basically threw away their, their, their heritage. God told them how to be prosperous. They refused. And God said, well, I'm going to take you out of here and send you to Babylon for 70 years. And during that time, you're going to learn. I'm going to teach you. And then after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back and we're going to reset this thing. But while they were in Babylon, you would expect that God would punish them and cause them to die. But that's not exactly what he did. Now, there was struggle. And yes, there were some who, who were, were martyrs and were put to death as in, on, on, on the way. We know that, those who refused to do what God told them to do. So God speaks to Jeremiah, and this is his word to those people of the time. This is what the Lord says. The God of Israel says to all the exiles carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the prosperity of the city to which I have sent you as exiles. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. Interesting. So God placed that verse in my heart. And as I was praying, and I, I actually got with some other intercessors, men that I really, really look up to when it comes to prayer, men that are part of international and global intercessory teams. And I said, let's talk. And we came to this conclusion that God has called Christians to occupy to be God's people, to continue to prosper, to not curse our city, but to bless our city, to not withdraw into a cave and shrink back, no, but to stay where we are, to, to, to get jobs in our community and love people, not wave our bony finger at them and throw our Bibles at them, no, just be prosperous. See, one thing is for sure, because we've seen this over and over again, that when people go, whether it be a nation or a city or a community or a state, whatever it is, if they continue to use those things that have been cursed and that have been proven time and time and time to destroy humanity and destroy people, it collapses under its own weight. So we either can be a part of that and throw in and watch ourselves be depleted and our own families be torn apart, or we can take Jeremiah's advice here. Prosper. 
seek God's blessing on your life. Keep doing what he's told you to do, and that is to prosper in your family, to embrace your family, to bless your city. Jesus made it even more clear in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. You notice what he did here? Jesus, just before that, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Matter of fact, let me back up. We'll come back to Matthew 5. Let's look at Matthew 4, the chapter just before. Just another example of where Jesus came up against this. So John the Baptist had been praying, praying, prepping, prepping, prepping for Jesus to come. Jesus comes, then John is martyred. He's killed. And you would think everybody else was panicking, going, oh, no, this is the end. It was just getting good. And Jesus, this is what he says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. He's speaking to the people who murdered John the Baptist. On those living in the land of the shadow of death. You ever heard of the Roanoke River? River of death. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. You see what he did there? Instead of going, yeah, you know what? Maybe this is not the time I was supposed to come. Maybe this thing is all falling apart. Father, can you just take me back and let's reset? He didn't do that. He says, you know what? There is darkness here, and I'm come to bring the light. And the first thing he does after hearing about John the Baptist is not only praise, because he knows where he is. He's saying, you know, John the Baptist was awesome. He's with the Father now. He turns right around and says, we're moving forward. Repent for the kingdom of God. His ministry was only warming up. Then he turns around in the very next chapter and he says this to his disciples, you are the light of the world. I thought Jesus was the light of the world. No, no, he said, you are now it because I'm getting ready to go away. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, metaphor, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. There's your solution. Not to stop being the light. (laughs) And besides, even if you are light, and and as many Christians know that we've got truth inside us, we know that we've been forgiven, we know all of that, but but, but we made the mistake as a church as a whole to think we're just going to hold out and hide when Jesus says, no, 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 you're the light of the world. It's going to be through you that they will hear the gospel. It'll be through your life that they see being lived out in front of them. You don't even have to say a word for the most part until they ask you. As the culture crumbles, as families you know, just fall apart, as children and young people who have eaten the bread of this nasty philosophy for generations only walk up and say, how are you doing it? I've eaten my last pill to get me out of depression. I'm done with the bottle. I'm done with sex. I can only watch so many reruns in movies before I finally say, isn't there more? Even my own nine-year-old asked me the other day as we were sitting there driving down the road. He looked at me and he said, Dad, what is the purpose of life? And I'm going, well, you're taking this deep real quick there, buddy. And I looked at him and I said, 
teaching moment. And I looked at him. I said, Andrew, our purpose is to love God, to know him intimately, and to make him known. And he looked at him. He said, good answer. <laughs> I'm going, cool, man. This kid's got a deeper stream than I even know what's going on. All right. We're called to be a city on a hill. So the church, is it a building? No, it's a people. And when the people, the 7,000 that are reserved that have not bowed the knee, rise up and finally say, we're going to be salt and light. What is salt? Salt, wherever it is placed, changes everything. It changes anything that is found. We know that in chemistry. Salt was an amazing choice because it transforms. It's not by force. It just changes it from the outside in. Light, also a wonderful choice. Light dispels darkness. Light doesn't do anything but just be light. And darkness will exist unless there is light. The moment you turn on the light, you see. When a Christian walks into a room, when a Christian just lives a life of of Christ. In other words, don't hide who you are. Don't dispel who you are. Don't pull the, the, the energy out of your life, but just be what God has called you to be and watch what happens. Darkness will flee. Darkness will flee. Now, well, we have times where darkness confronts. Absolutely, we're seeing that now. But the truth of the matter is, light always wins over darkness. Do we believe it? Peter, in chapter 2 of his epistle, his, his first epistle, writes this to Christians who are enduring a time of real tribulation. They're suffering. They're getting saved among these pagan cultures and, and, and these little churches. See, we don't even know. I mean, here in the United States, we're actually on the other extreme. We started off basically a Christian nation, and the founders said, look, this stuff will not work without a Christian populace. The moment you remove Christ, this whole document just becomes fodder. So we're on this side going down, whereas there are places around the world that are only discovering and going, starting to move up. And we've seen that historically all over the world. I have made a study, my life study of the history of revival movements, the history of God moving in different locations. You know what? You're not going to read this in books. They're not going to teach you this in history. You're not going to, it's not going to be on the news. But if you'll take time to read and watch how God has transformed whole nations. You ever heard of a nation called Hungary? 20 years ago, I was sitting in Romania at a conference. And for the first time, about a dozen Hungarian pastors and civil leaders came to the conference. And they were hungry for God. And they were beginning to see political change and upheaval. Things were in such bad shape that they were beginning to cry out for solutions. And they heard that something was changing in Romania. And so they came to this conference in the capital city. I just happened to be there. And I watched them, and they were telling me, and saying, these guys, this is a miracle. So what you read in the news today, what you see going on in their nation, you're not going to hear of. But man, they've got wholesale revival going on there. People are coming to Christ in droves. The church is probably stronger in many ways than us. 
This is what Peter says. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Why? Because they wage against your soul. Wage war against your soul. If they were waging war there then, how much are they waging war now? How is it that the immorality of our culture that is now being celebrated is waging war against the Christian soul? Oh, it is. We know that to be true. But what does he say? Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. There's another solution. Notice what he's saying. Don't rise up. Don't have a rebellion. Don't burn any houses down. Don't kill anyone. Don't take anybody hostage. Don't do anything stupid like that. Live such good lives. It's time for the church to be the church. It's time for us to not be influenced by a dead philosophy. It's time for us to look to the scripture for something that is real and true, something that leaves real joy, real peace. Not convinced yet? Oh, you will be. Especially if you're young. Especially if you're young. I know what you're listening to. I see it. I see your movies. I've read some of your books. I know what's going on in television. I see. And yet I step away, not in disgust, to try to tear down anybody's thinking or, oh man, you're just being an old guy. I mean, you know. Uh-uh. I look at it and say, that is going to kill you. That is going to destroy your life. That is going to mess up your kids. That's going to destroy your finances. That's going to so screw with your head, you're not going to even know whether you're a boy or a girl. And that's where we are. But if our backs are up against the wall, which they are, do we believe that we can go forward? Yes. <laughs> because that's what we've come to. Let me finish today with our illustration, with our story that I began with. So there is Lawrence Chamberlain standing on that little round top. You know, I had the pleasure of actually standing on that little mound. That's a small mountain. And I stood in the very exact spot that he would have been standing. And I remember just looking down that going, gosh, how did he do this? His sergeants walk up to him and said, sir, we don't have a bullet in our guns. We're done. Sir, half of our strength, most of our guys are wounded or dead. What do we do? And all that is ringing in Colonel Chamberlain's mind is, if we run, it's over. What do we do now? And I love what he did. Because he looked at his sergeants and he said, fix bayonets. Sir? Charge. What? Yeah, we're going down this hill, baby, and we're going fast. He took, they were wrapping around the mountain the way their flank was, and he wanted those guys on the far left of their flank to wheel around like a door and to close them in, screaming all the way they were with not a bullet in their gun. And those Alabama boys looked at it and said, what in the heck are they doing? But all they knew is their drum guns were dropping and they were running for their lives. And before the day was over, the sergeant walked up and said, sir, we've got several hundred prisoners here. 
we don't have any bullets. And he said, well, don't tell them that. <laughs> the day was won with one thing, courage, and the desire to move forward. We can let what is going on around us continue to defeat us. We can be like Elijah and hide in the cave. We can be like all that kind of went to Jesus and said, hey, it's over. John the Baptist is dead. Or you can move forward and be the church. It, it, yes, it's going to mean some change. It's going to mean some fluidity. It's going to mean some ingenuity. It's going to mean they're going to have to draw on some things that perhaps we've never drawn upon to be salt and light. But that's okay. You know? Some of us want a challenge here in life. Well, you got one. And it's time to embrace it. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. I'm going to teach you. We're going to look at the scripture, how to armor up. It's not going to involve any violence. It's going to involve understanding who God has created you to be. It's going to involve knowing how to use your mouth. It's going to be involved in how to pray, how to live your life, how to focus it's going to involve all that. Paul said, you know, we're called to be soldiers, but not allow ourselves to get caught up in civilian affairs so that we lose our edge, lose who we're called to be and to do. So we could abandon this and just say, well, let's just go back to doing life as easy and just ride this out. Or folks, we can fix bayonets and charge. Let's stand up this morning. Thanks for joining our live stream today. Make sure to like our Facebook page. And if you want more information about us, make sure to visit us at our website, valleychurch.us, or go and download our Valley Church app called Valley Church Weldon. If you feel led to give today, you can give on our website and on our app.